Um, and so we can see this kind of disconnect in alarming ways among well-known Christians, leaders in the church who, who teach all sorts of things eloquently and successfully, but you only come to find out that there's been a massive disconnect on some level that's shown up in their sexual morality or the way they use their money or whatever it is. There are times where we get this alarming sense that, wait, how true is all of this? I've, I've grieved probably... Nothing grieves me more in life than seeing someone who knows a lot not make the connections to what they believe. To sit across from a man who has known the Bible for decades and submitted to it and believed it apparently, but when things get hard in a marriage or disappointing in a marriage, he'll just say, well, I think God wants me to be happy. So that's why I'm leaving. And there can be a, a tragic disconnect that at times is inexplicable, but there can be an amazing display also. There can be wonderful displays of connection, of faithfulness, where it's obvious that what we believe is what we really believe. It shows up when the test results come back from the doctor and it says malignant, and we're hopeful nonetheless. It shows up when we lose our jobs, but we don't despair. It shows up when we are in a hard relationship where maybe we've been deeply offended or hurt, but we continue to seek God's reconciliation and restoration of that relationship against all odds. It shows up when people give of themselves and their time and their resources self-sacrificially. It's been amazing to see in this flock how often there's not a disconnect, but a display, a glorious display of faithfulness of our faith kicking into gear. So this summer is seeking to figure out the difference between a life that disconnects or a life that displays. We want lives that display God's faithfulness. Everything we've been seeing this morning is about God's work in and for us for His glory. And that's what we long for. That's what we seek. And so we're going to consider what it means to grow. What, what's the difference between merely saying you're a Christian or or going through Christian actions, but not having a real connection that leads to a transformed life. We want to grow. We want to be real. We don't want to put on a charade of Christian things that's not really real. And so that's what we're after, living for real. And so we're calling our series Habits of Grace. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 3, kind of near the end of the New Testament, uh, we're, we're going to just camp on one verse. I think this one verse sets the stage beautifully for us for this series. Here it is. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ. So, being a Christian, growing in grace, growing in the way God wants us to is about Christ. It's, it's a Christ-dependent, Christ-glorifying, Christ-satisfied life. For Christ also suffered once for sins. So that's where being a real Christian starts. Jesus in our place. Now, you may find it odd if you're not a Christian or if you're not familiar with what the Bible teaches 
to talk about suffering is something necessary for us to be Christians, to be who God calls us to be. So what's this suffering thing? Well, the fact is we needed Jesus to suffer for us. That's how bad our sin is. He suffers once for sins. So if you don't think you've got a sin problem, you don't have a suffering need from God. If you think you just maybe need a little time for improvement and not radical salvation from God, well, you've got a very different problem than the Bible says you have. The Bible says we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. Uh, it says that not, not one of us is righteous. No, not one. Each of us has just rebelled against God. That's how we're born. In rebellion against God, we've got a sin problem in this world, and that's the fact from God's perspective. And so we've got to start by realizing we've got a sin problem, and that sin is so serious it requires suffering to atone for it, to satisfy God's righteous anger towards sin and sinners, and he needs to have the payment for that sin. He's a holy God, and he just can't saunter into the presence of sin as if it didn't really matter. I hope you want a God who is holy and really cares that much about sin, and he does. He takes you so seriously that he takes your sin that seriously. And so God really is caring about sin and provides the solution to the sin that we all need a solution for, and that is the suffering of his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't die but have everlasting life. He, and to believe in him means to believe that he lived for you, he died for you, and he rose from the dead for you. He died once for sins. Notice it says once for sins. Unlike all those previous sacrifices in the Old Testament that were repeated year after year, thousands and thousands for centuries, sacrifices offered, none of them could ultimately pay for sins. So Jesus, we see then, is the fulfillment of all those foreshadowings in sacrifices of the one who comes and dies once, never to die again, doesn't need to. His death is perfectly satisfactory to pay for our sins, provide the forgiveness we desperately need. But Jesus also lived for us. He is the righteous, the only righteous one. We, all of us, are unrighteous. Every human being who's ever lived, yourself included, is unrighteous to the core. And here's Jesus, the only righteous one, taking your place, taking your unrighteousness on himself and paying the penalty, but then giving you his righteousness. The righteous one dies for the unrighteous, suffers for the unrighteous, so that we could be declared righteous, so that we could be forgiven. But that forgiveness, that righteous standing before God is not the end of the story. Forgiveness and righteousness in Christ is actually a means to the goal. God doesn't save you so you can just get your act together. God doesn't save you just so you can be in a forgiven state, to, to be just in a righteous state. God saves you. Look, that, halfway through 18, that he might bring us to God. That's the goal. That's why you're forgiven to be brought to God. 
This isn't just getting your life right, getting self-actualized, getting fulfilled, getting in touch with your spirituality in a very human and self-centered way. No, this is all accomplished for you so you can be brought to God. And I think we often tragically have, we miss this. We miss the real goal of our salvation. And we end up with a very human-centered idea of what the good news of Jesus is. The good news of Jesus is, yes, he takes your place, but why? So that he can bring you to God. He can restore your fellowship with God, your intimacy with God, your relationship with God for which you were created fundamentally. That's why you exist for a relationship with God, for knowledge of God, for satisfaction in God, for pleasure in God more than any other pleasure. You're created for God. And that's what's accomplished. Don't disconnect the goal of your salvation from the means. The means is, yes, forgiveness. It's righteousness. It's, it's adoption. All these things accomplished for us. But why? That you may be brought to God. That's the goal of all of this. Knowing God, intimacy with God, the only thing the Bible says worth boasting about, not power, not wisdom, not riches, but what? That you know God and understand Him, that you have this relationship with God for which you were created. That's why you're on this planet, to know God, to be in intimate fellowship with Him. And then look, look, this verse is just loaded. And then what's the implication for our lives? What is going on in us that brings all of this about. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So how do you grow? You grow according to the Spirit. You grow not depending on yourself or your, your identity disconnected from the God who is the source of life, but no, now connected to Him. And the Spirit now brings about an entirely new life, qualitatively speaking. He brings a new life about for you. You no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You're now alive in your spirit, not, not just dead but alive now, and that's what's accomplished here. So this all describes our series, Habits of Grace. And I hope when you see that title that we have shamelessly stolen from David Mathis's new book that just came out called Habits of Grace. I have not read it yet, but other elders have. Jerry, I think you read it. No, Kenny read it, and a couple others. And they think it's great, but whether it is or not, which I assume it is, the, ha the, the title is great. So we grab this title because we, we think it helpfully gets at this whole question of how we grow, how we know the difference between disconnect and display, and how we grow, and we grow through habits of grace. I hope you notice an inherent tension between these two words. So I just defined them. I just defined these two words according to what we're thinking about in this series. And here are the definitions, habits. How we grow. How we, we grow through habits. What's another word for habits? Routines. Good. What else? Practices. Practices. Good. Traditions. Traditions. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. Yeah. Something you don't even have to. It's just instinctive. It just comes instinctively. Um, did you hear about this mother this week? I think it was in Colorado whose 
whose little child was attacked in her backyard by a mountain lion. You, you know what she did? She fought off the mountain lion. Yeah! I bet she didn't have to do a cost-benefit analysis in the, before she ran out and did that, right? She just, boom! She was wrestling that lion before she knew what happened. And she, her kid was being mauled by this thing, and she ran out. And ran. So we do things instinctively when they're embedded in who we are. So, so yeah, habits, the things we do religiously, things we do as a matter of how our life is, how it goes. And some of you, especially the younger generation, has such an aversion to these kinds of words. They sound so inauthentic. And we want to be real, right? Inauthentic. And work really hard at that image, which is an interesting idea. Work hard at the image of authenticity. And so, so words like religion and religious practice and habits and, and things you just do as a matter of course can easily sound and easily be inauthentic. They can. And we don't want that. We don't want empty religion. We, want, we don't want mere religiosity devoid of the heart of all of it. But let's not swing to the other extreme and have no place for habits, for Discipline, practice, things we devote ourselves to because we know it's how we grow and how we find life and how that authenticity actually is cultivated. That's what we're after here. So they, they are spiritual disciplines, these habits. Practice with our bodies. Now, that may sound strange to you. And again, I wrote this, these two definitions, so take them for what they're worth. Webster was not consulted. So... Uh, but spiritual disciplines practice with our bodies. The reason I wanted to put those two right off the bat in tension with each other is these are spiritual disciplines. These are cultivating the inner man, our, our souls, our hearts, uh, even while our bodies are wasting away. I spent uh, most of the uh, week before last uh, in an ICU unit in Connecticut with my mother, who's still there, still on life support. And and I was surrounded by bodies wasting away, including my mother's. And, and what a place to ponder this sermon I was going to preach. Realizing that often the, the people who are strongest spiritually are very weak physically. There is not a necessary relationship at all in the Bible between physical strength and spiritual strength. We live in a world where the physical body is wasting away. We're all dying right now. We're all on the way. And so we, we need to realize these are spiritual practices. These are investing in the things of the soul, of the spirit. But they're done in your body. They're, they're done uh, as embodied creatures. God made us body and soul. You can over-spiritualize spirituality. You can make it overly mystical. You can turn it into something so vague and abstract that's not wedded completely to being embodied. God intends for us to grow spiritually in our physical bodies, in our physical world. So we take seriously then what we do with our bodies, realizing that you grow by using your physical body. You do this. I have a friend who's battled severe depression for eight years, and I was with him not long ago, and it was so good to be with him and, and hear him say, I don't feel like 
doing what's right most of the time. And I just said, well, isn't it good then that you actually can still control your body even though your heart seems all over the place? And even though you don't feel like smiling when your kids get home from school, you can still do that because they need you to. Isn't it good to know that even though you don't feel like reading your Bible, you still have legs that can get up and walk to the shelf and an arm that can take it off the shelf and eyes that can see the words and a brain that can understand them. And I know you don't feel like doing it, but you have a body that can still do the things you know you need to do. You really are an embodied soul and, and we are made body and the resurrection shows us that that's not just some temporary state that's the eternal state for us in the resurrection God wants us to grow and be everything he wants us to be with bodies and souls so it's a bodily thing and related to that it's mostly a normal life it takes place mostly in the normal routines of life in the Christian life, it's not mountaintop experiences primarily. It's the daily. The daily is how we grow. The normal is how we grow. And it's rooted in the local church. We have not devoted an entire week in this series to the local church because we don't want to miscommunicate that the entire context of these is primarily the local church for God's people. And, and even when you're by yourself in your room reading your Bible, say, you're doing it as part of this body, this church family that you're doing it with. And so, so it's all in the context of the local church. But I, I, I hope you see a tension between the word habit and the word grace. Well, if it's grace, what's this habit thing? What's this, what I do, what, what I discipline myself to do? I thought it was grace. And if it's habits, what, what's this grace thing? Well, the Bible always puts these together in an uncomplicated way. We see it as complicated, but the Bible never does. The Bible does not say, no, I know I'm going to have to give a 50-page philosophical treatise on how it could be grace and habits, but it just doesn't do that. It says things like, work out your faith with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you want to say, well, which is it? And God says, yes. <laughs> and it is, it's God's grace driving this that leads to habits. Really normal looking stuff we do to grow. And this grace is indeed the foundation. It, and we realize going into it that growth in godliness is a gift of God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'll do an entire sermon on the, the Spirit-empowered life to conclude the series. He's the one who does it through his kind ministry. Any godwardness, any godliness in us is the result of God's goodness toward us as the Spirit works. I hope you see these two tensions. But as we saw in our first Peter passage, the point is this, intimacy with and enjoyment of God, which bears fruit and glorifies him. That's the working out of the gospel. That's the working out of your faith with fear and trembling. That is seeking not just a good spiritual state, that rests on you, but brings you to God. We can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus has done everything we need for him to. There is a danger in a series like this because there's something in our hearts, in our flesh, that loves lists of things to do that make us satisfy God's demands. 
there is a potential for this series, in spite of our, our screaming about the contrary, for a series like this to lead us to a legalistic, burdensome, crushing life. And we can't have, there's a danger to this series if it's not habits of grace for knowing God, depending on Jesus. We are gospel grounded in this, but then we pursue deeper grounding in the gospel through what we do. So intimacy with God, as we saw in our first Peter passage, that we're brought to God, that we enjoy God more. And this fundamental goal is a natural fruit-bearing reality then. We bear fruit, primarily the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these things that the Spirit brings to us. We're more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We are satisfied in God and we hunger for God and we grow in Christ and we work out the gospel in this way. That's the goal of all of it. And we've got to make sure this is a Christian pursuit of growth. There are many things about the Christian pursuit of growth that look like other pursuits of growth. Every religion has things you do to grow. But every religion, besides the Christian religion, when understood properly, is about what we do to find God. The Christian truth is God has taken the initiative and found us. We are brought to God by Christ. It's not something we accomplish. It's not something we prove ourselves worthy of. And so if we go into a study on the habits of grace seeking to prove something, seeking to, to display our worthiness before God, to earn something that Jesus has completely earned, how tragic. No, this needs to be grace-grounded habits. Or else... We're no different than every other religion in the world. Muhammad Ali died. What in the world? As a kid born in 64, I was a kid in the 60s, and Muhammad Ali was on his rise when I was just, I remember Muhammad Ali since as long as I can remember. It's kind of like Michael Jackson. What Was there life before Thriller? I, I can't really remember if there was, right? Uh, in, the, in my life at this point, it's, it's fascinating to watch these, these backdrops in pop culture die. And how fascinating to listen to people reflect on the life of Muhammad Ali. Uh, maybe a bit overstated. Uh, I don't have no doubt he had many admirable qualities. It sounds like he was quite a humanitarian and philanthropist in some ways and, and obviously incredibly gifted, but my goodness, the way people have been talking about him is uh, you couldn't speak of someone more highly. Um, but his wife said something at his funeral that took my breath away. You know the expression breathtaking? It's, it's rare in life that that's literally what happens. Where it's, it's as it, your breath is taken away from you. That's what happened when I heard his wife say this. As a Christian, if you're a Christian, you will hear this and it will take your breath away. She said something about her husband that was supposed to be motivating, inspiring, encouraging. And how you hear this sentence tells a lot about how you view God and what it means to be everything he intends for us. Here's what she said. 
he would wake up every day thinking about his own salvation and would wake up every day and say, I just want to get to heaven. And I have a lot of good deeds still to do to get there. <laughs> That's the anti-gospel. That's the opposite of what the good news of the Christian faith is about. And there's something in me that is drawn to that way of thinking. There's something in you that likes, give me a list of five things to do and I'll be good and I'll get the credit. Something in me, that's exactly what Islam is, the five pillars of Islam. Do these five things and you're good. But it's not freeing. It's, it's not grace. And so the last thing we want to do is to go into a study on how we grow in grace in Christ and make it about the same thing Islam is about. And every other religion is about. Do you realize how different this is than every other religion? God has done everything to bring you to himself in Christ. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. It's all gift. It's all gift. And this gift is a transforming reality that the Spirit brings that makes you completely different than you were. You're, you're now a new creature in Christ. The Bible couldn't use more radical language to describe what happens in the life of a true believer. Someone who, by the Spirit's enabling, trusts in Christ, is a new creature in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You are now, you've got a rewiring of, of your core being. Everything's different now. And you begin then a process of change, a process of growth. When we baptize people at Grace, the person baptizing says this, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. That's what this union with Christ, this identification with Christ is showing us in this symbol of identification by faith in his death, in his payment for sins, and in his new life. We now are are raised to walk in newness of life. We've got a new life that we start when we walk with Jesus. We're now qualitatively different. It's all in him and by him and for him. And in John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. And the whole command is to abide in him. Actually, let's go there. Let's go to John 15 and read this abiding passage. John 15, beautiful picture of what it looks like to get the Christian life. John 15, we'll just start in verse 4. Abide in me, John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see what he's saying here, that you abide in him. It's all about relationship with him. And that abiding, that relational dwelling, bears fruit. And so the goal really isn't 
fruit, it's fruit born out of abiding. A big difference. So it's relationship at its core and fruit bearing as the result of that relationship. And he puts it in, in clear terms. You can do nothing in this regard without abiding in him. It's not about your self-effort at the end of it all. It's, it's about Jesus bearing fruit in you, through you, as you abide in him. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, my father is glorified. That's our goal. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples, demonstrating the authenticity of your true discipleship relationship with Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Dwell in it. Rest in it. Take up residence in it. If you keep my commandments, see how practical? You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. See how dependent on Jesus it is? And abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. So we are abiding in Christ. We are brought to God and we are filled with joy. The Bible elsewhere calls it inexpressible joy. That's how deep and meaningful and powerful it is. And so we abide in him. So how do we grow? What do we do then? And, and I love what we're doing this summer because the spiritual life can be a mysterious thing. It can be a hard thing to discern and define and, and qualify. And, and it's so good to know that it's really not complicated. It really isn't. The, growing as a Christian is not a complicated thing. It, it, it's a very simple thing. It's not an easy thing. But it's a simple thing. And as we read through the Bible, there, there may be others, but I think there are nine things. As we've gathered and discussed these as leaders, what are the nine things, what are the things that if we devote ourselves to them, we'll grow? And if we don't, we won't. Uh, here, here are the nine that we think we need to focus upon. Some of these may be obvious to you and you already knew this must be where we're going. Some maybe not as much. But let's just walk through these nine. We will have a sermon on each of these this summer. Right now, Randy Grundyke is preaching on the Word at La Mirada. The Word. The Word is essential for us. We must seek to be women and men of the Word, a people Scripture-saturated. And Jesus is our model in this, is he not? He's quoted Scripture constantly. He devoted himself to Scripture constantly. He overcame temptation using Scripture Right? He could have done it in so many ways, called down a legion of angels and knocked Satan off that mountain when he was tempting him. But what does he say? Right in Satan's face, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus saw scripture as a means of growth, as a way he grew. And that's our model. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We are to grow holistically. We are to grow as Jesus did in all the facets of our lives as we devote ourselves to the Word. That's why at Grace, we preach sermons that are coming right out of the Bible or else, or at least try to really hard. 
at Grace, we tried to make our time of sun corporate worship scriptures dominated and saturated. Why in our counseling at Grace, we want the Bible to be open on the table before us. Why in our conversations and our thinking about things, we want to constantly be going to the Bible to ask what, what do the scriptures say about this? Why we devote entire services to have reading services at Grace. And, and, and in, in our membership covenant, we, we commit ourselves to self-feeding on the word for one thing. So we're devoted to the scriptures as we seek to grow. And we're devoted to prayer. We're devoted to be men and women of prayer who make prayer a regular part of our lives. Prayer, I think there's a good argument that prayer requires more faith than anything else we do. I can think of nothing dumber than getting on my knees, talking, in a room by myself to someone who's not there. There's nothing dumber you could do than that. Nothing less productive. But if God is there, what better use of your time could you possibly have? And so to devote ourselves to prayer, times of prayer where we spend time sitting in God's presence, thinking on Him, talking to Him, crying to Him, expressing all the things of our heart to him, communing with him. We need to do this. We need to devote ourselves to prayer. We need to be worshipful people. If your time in the word and prayer doesn't lead to worship, we've got a tragic disconnect. If you're t and for years, I would just read the Bible and pray, close it and go on with my day. Realizing that I, I needed to make sure I was doing whatever I could to have this time foster adoration of God. Heart-engaged affection expressed to God. Heart-engaged adoration expressed to God. That's why for years now I've included singing as part of my time with the Lord in the morning. Or else I can actually send bad messages to my heart that you can fill your mind with Scripture. You can talk to God and leave no more worshipful than you were before. And so I highly encourage you, and I don't care at all, neither does God, how well you sing. I've never been able to sing well. I'm not a Gerald Haugen. I've never been able to sing well, but I don't care, and God doesn't either. So I sing front to back through a hymnal regularly through my time with the Lord. And I can't, I can't read a word of music, but I just make up tunes sometimes. I'm so glad it's unusual for someone to actually hear me. Um, I do. I make up tunes. Uh, I, I have actually learned that you can learn that certain meters apply to all kinds of tunes. Like, if you take the tune to Amazing Grace, you can get about 25% of the hymns in the hymnal. It's just amazing. <laughs> They're all common meter, and I don't even know what that means, but it works. You can do that. And so, so, so singing's not the only way to get your heart engaged and express adoration to God, but it's a great way. At least read through a hymn. <laughs> And express that to God. Get your heart engaged. Worship God so that when you come to the corporate gathering of worship, you hit it. You, hit it. you don't have to be ramp up. I was just back in Connecticut, like I said. And if, if the Merritt Parkway is something everybody in Connecticut knows about. It's this very, very old road that was built in the 1700s that eventually was paved and turned into a parkway. They don't call it a highway because it's just two lanes. And... There are trees, it's just beautiful, but it's terrifyingly dangerous because they were not thinking of 
modern day when they built this highway. And so every entrance is a stop sign. There, there aren't entrance ramps on the Merritt Parkway. And Connecticut people laugh at how terrifying this highway is because you pull up and the traffic, and it's like, and you have to somehow get up to speed on this highway. It's crazy. Can you imagine that all the entrance ramps to the five just being stop signs? Oh, it's, it's crazy enough when you got running starts, right? Well, we, we treat worship like the Merritt Parkway, right? It's just, I'm going to come on Sunday morning and somehow get up to speed. And it shows up. It really does. It shows up in a, a lackadaisical, disengaged, distracted, lack of worshipfulness. It does. And it's evidence of how we're doing by ourselves. When we show up and there's a corporate uh, lack of energy or enthusiasm or seeming like you really care. Let's not be Merritt Parkway Christians when it comes to worship. And so let's cultivate that ahead of time and be worshipful along the way. Uh, no wonder it can feel so fake to show up on Sunday morning when you haven't inclined your heart toward God at all for f- six days or, or longer on your own. So let's be worshipful people cultivating hearts of worship. Giving is another way we grow. Now, many of you realize, oh, giving is an expression of faith. It's an expression of growth. No, it is that, but it's also a practice of growth. It's a way we grow. And this is true of all these disciplines. They're both expressions and practices that deepen these things. So when, when, when I give, I don't do this anymore. I just look at the receipt I got last night from the online giving thing. It's not quite as good as doing this. Caroline, you do know we give as a family, right? Uh, so uh, it's strange. And related to the embodied thing, we need to think about doing things in life that require bodily action. I wonder what, the, what effect technology giving is having on the practice of it. There's something about sitting down and doing it physically. Anyway, that's another sermon. Uh, but, but giving, every time I give, I'm killing the idol of materialism. I'm exercising faith in God's faithful provision for me. And the more self-sacrificially I give, the more I grow in the giving as well as express the faith that's there. Um, serving. Next week, we will have an army Serving at Adventure Week, that will be an amazing display of faith, devoting a, week, a precious week of the summer to chasing kids all over the place, right? And, and making that all happen, it will be an expression of our growth, but it will also be an exercise in growth. We will be more godly when we devote ourselves to that. It's good for us to serve. And not just in ways like that, but bringing meals to friends, of, of, of praying for one another, of, of, of loving one another in tangible, practical, servant-hearted ways. Food bank is a great expression of, of serving in this way at our church. It's built into our routine as this beautiful picture of what serving looks like. Proclamation, another thing you seldom hear about when you talk about spiritual growth or spiritual formation, but, but the discipline of proclamation is, yes, again, an expression of our growth and our faith, but it's also an exercise of it. It's a deepening of it. I was just back in Connecticut, I told you, and, and I had one and a half pizzas over two days um, 
from Pepe's Pizza in Worcester Street, New Haven. And I, you've heard, some of you heard me talk about this before. It's the best pizza on the planet. <laughs> I don't even call other things pizza. Because um, this is pizza. And, and I can tell you for a long time why it's the best pizza on the planet and why Frank Sinatra and Ronald Reagan used to go to Pepe's and Sally's right down the street. And even now, as I'm telling you about it, I'm remembering it and my mouth is watering. And, and I want some now. And if I told you about it, you would too. And so when I speak of the goodness of Worcester Street pizza, my appreciation for it deepens. And if that's true of pizza, how about our savior? <laughs> yes, as we express the goodness of him, it is obedience because we're commanded to do it, but it's a way of expressing his goodness and deepening our appreciation for it. So the discipline of proclamation, when you speak well of Jesus and you just swallow hard and say, oh, this might be awkward, but I'm gonna talk about how good Jesus is. You deepen in your faith. You grow when you do that. Paul says this to Philemon. I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You grow when you share your faith. So proclamation is a way we grow. Fellowship, a necessary way we grow. We are not, like so many religions, called to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca or to a mountaintop guru experience, but to work these things out with each other, shoulder to the shoulder, working this out in the daily routines of life. Fellowship is a vital way we grow, committed to interdependent growth with God's people. And that especially happens when it gets hard when relationships get hard, when there's been offense, when there's been misunderstanding, when there's been hurt, when there's been insensitivity, and when we sin against each other, those are the greatest opportunities in our fellowship to grow. I'm so grateful I don't need to depend on my own life experiences to grow. That would be so anemic. I get to learn from from Tim Greco's growth and benefit from it and grow when he grows. And, and from, from all of you, as we grow together, we're not dependent on our own limited experience, but we can, we can gain growth from the experiences of others. It's, it's a fellowship we're called to, to really grow. Suffering, this may be a strange one to you. I'm going to practice the spiritual discipline of suffering. That seems masochistic and strange. Who would do that? I'm going to commit myself to suffering. Does that mean I wear a hair shirt and sit on a pole and self-flagellate? No. Um, all, which is all, where all things people have done in the history of the church in misunderstanding these things grotesquely. What does it mean to commit ourselves to grow in suffering? It means you realize you will suffer. It doesn't mean you wake up and say, on my list of things to do, suffer today. <laughs> because why? You don't need to put that on your list. It'll happen. You don't need to say breathe today. It'll happen. Unless someone prevents it from happening. But, but you'll suffer. So when we say the discipline of suffering, the habit of great of suffering, what we don't mean is uh, on one, in one sense that you, you seek suffering. It means that when it comes your way, and it will, what do you do in that? How do you discipline yourself in suffering to grow in suffering instead of avoid it at all costs? Do you move toward it when it comes your way? Or do you seek to deny it, run from it, ignore it, just do nothing but hate it, which you should do, but, but to say, Lord, what are you wanting to do in this? 
you, you move towards suffering in a way where you grow because Paul says, I want to know Christ and share in the fellowship of his suffering. Jesus is the man of sorrows. If you want to know Jesus, you need to be acquainted with sorrow and not avoid it at all costs. And there is another level where you actually do seek suffering and it's the suffering in the lives of other people. Christians are those, those bizarre people who are so confident that God will enable them to deal with the sufferings in their lives that they go out looking for the suffering of others to make their own, to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep, with more, to mourn with those who mourn, who, who say, Lord, you can take care of me and my suffering so well, I'm going to go looking for the suffering of others to help them bear it by making it as if it were my own. You move towards suffering in the lives. See, that's why fellowship is so important here. And missions. This is maybe another one you hadn't really would have included on this list. You would have had journaling, but maybe not missions. Um, journaling's fine. It's just not in the Bible, which is fine. We do lots of things that aren't in the Bible, but sometimes I hear people talk about the discoveries of spiritual life that I can't seem to find in the Bible as helpful as they may be. Um, and journaling, please, I've journaled at times in my life. I just can't read it when I go back, so it's frustrating. So, but, um, so yeah, so missions. I, the most godly people I know are missions-minded people every time. I've never met a really deep, godly, well-grown Christian who doesn't care about the nations. And I think it fuels the growth and expresses the growth. Because when you grow, when you grow in all these other things, you realize that God's concern is for the nations. So it's not just getting my act together or even our act together, but helping them to know God and be brought to him. That you care about God's glory being displayed and covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. You care about that. So growth in being missions-minded fuels your growth and expresses your growth. So all these things work together. So... Now what? I just want to make some observations and things I want us to keep in mind as we go through this series and practice these things the rest of our lives. And yes, I have nine. So we've only got about an hour to go. So hang in there. Uh, no. Uh, watch how fast. Uh, the first thing, these habits of grace work interdependently. Oh, Ron Olshafer said, he asked if we could put these on the website, so I will. But uh, habits of grace work interdependently. I hope as we went through this list, you already picked that up. If you've ever practiced these, you know how interdependently these have to work. You can't be a person of prayer if you're not, uh, uh, of the word if you're not prayerful about it. Right? Your time in the word is only what it should be if you're prayerful as you go into it and if it fuels prayer. And, and so your time in the word better be prayerful and your prayer better be taught to you from the scriptures to pray scripture, to learn how to pray from the Bible. So you can't pray well if you're not in the Word, and you can't go to the Word well if you don't pray, and I could just keep doing this for all of them, right? Uh, and if the Word and the prayer isn't worshipful, well, call the whole thing off. And if understanding the Word and prayer and worship, understanding the lavish generosity of God doesn't make you a giving person and express it that way, well, then what's going on? And if your giving doesn't include serving in real practical, tangible ways, well, we're certainly not growing in grace. 
and in Christ-likeness, and if, if it's not spilling over in proclamation, it's tragically disconnected from where it needs to go because you're, you're pooling it in a cul-de-sac, and, and fellowship needs to be the context of all of this, or it's just fake. And suffering is a part of life, and you see how these all have to work interdependently. Keep that in mind throughout. You take one of these away, we've, we've, we've got a gap. We've got a, a, something seriously missing. And please know worship for us includes all that happens when we adore God, including the Lord's Supper and baptism. We're not leaving those things off. Second, habits of grace look mostly normal. You've got to get this. We, we can be so, especially the younger generation, drama junkies. We, we, um, we want the next adrenaline-inducing experience after another. And the more, more we get that and the more increasingly it's adrenaline-inducing, then the better it is. And what a great time of worship. It was, well, no, this is mostly worked out in the normalcy of, here's how you grow in the dramatic ways of Christ. You set your alarm clock half an hour earlier than you would have if you weren't going to get up and read your Bible. And then you actually go to bed a little earlier because of that. And you actually get out of bed when the alarm clock goes off because you're devoted to be a man or woman of the word and prayer and worship. So, so you do that. That's the dramatic display of a habit of grace. Setting your alarm clock with foresight into practicing these things. The Christian life, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, is so difficult. He said the hardest thing about the Christian life is it's so daily. It's not a pilgrimage to Mecca or a mountaintop. It's worked out changing diapers, sitting in traffic with patience rather than road rage. It's worked out when, when you lose your job or you're, you have relational struggles or financial battles or just in the normalcy of life. Jesus offended people because his life looked so normal. Did you know that? He goes to Nazareth. He teaches as the Messiah, and they're offended because they say what? We know his brothers and sisters. We watch this kid grow up. There's nothing special about him. Yeah, I can't think of any sins he's committed now that you mention it, but I can't think of anything really big. He's not impressive. He's got such a normal looking life. They said the same thing about the apostles. He's common, uneducated men. Nothing in their appearance that attracts us to him. Nothing dramatic. No, mostly just really normal. Blue-collar worker. Jesus would have taken the bus to work. I heard a comedian say one time that uh, the definition of a loser is anybody who takes the bus to work after 30. Jesus would have been a loser. It's the kind of job he had. How do you define radical Christian living? I hope it looks normal enough to look like Jesus' life. And so it looks mostly normal. And they take discipline, something maybe you really need to ponder. Discipline. Are you disciplined? Do you devote yourself to these things? It takes discipline. My son Sam is unusually strong for a 10-year-old. He's got some Pacific Islander thing going on there that is just genetically the kid is going to be stronger than his father ever thought of being. And so he started lifting weights with me. First time we went, he came back, ran to the mirror, took off his shirt, said, Dad, I don't look any different. I said, ah, oh, Sam, this takes time. This takes devotion, discipline over time. In the same way, when you eat an entire half gallon of ice cream, which I've done in a sitting. You can go look in the mirror and you don't look any different. He's like, I'm going to do that every day. No, no, no. 
there's so much parallel between spiritual growth and, and the way we are affected physically by what we do or don't do. We, we devote ourselves to things, and over time we see either steady growth or erosion of growth that often is imperceptible and slow but has devastating effects or wonderful effects with a long obedience in the same direction, which is not a Eugene Peterson quote. It's actually a terrible man's quote um, that he stole from him. Um, so yes, these things look mostly normal, and they take discipline. Listen, listen to this passage speaking of discipline. Um, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. I talk to folks a lot who are struggling or battling sin in ways that they're being defeated or they feel so distant from God. And, and I, I will often say, well, you, are you reading your Bible? Well, it's usually the answer. Are you praying regularly? Well, guys, sort of, I talk to God now and then. Are you devoted to cultivating a heart of worship? What do you mean by that? Are you really devoted to fellowship in a local church? Well, I, I go to this one when it's convenient. And I just eventually say, well, what do you expect, really? What do you expect? I'm not the least bit surprised you're floundering. And every time I talk to someone who's godly and I say, what's going on? We've been asking people when we have them over at our house to tell our kids what they need to do to grow. And people say things like, read your Bible. That's all you got for me? Yeah, just pray. Just do these things faithfully in a disciplined way. And again, we've said this, rooted in the local church, spirit-empowered. I'll do a whole sermon on that. And there's a really very clear way you can decide whether you're growing or not. Do you see sin being killed off in your life? That's a really important question. Uh, listen to this. I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So just ask yourself, am I seeing sin being killed off in my life? Are you seeking sin being, am I more patient now than I was a year ago? Am I more gentle now than I was a year ago? Am I, am I decreasing in my attraction to sexual immorality? And am I increasing in my love for, for God's ways of things? Just ask those real basic questions. Am I killing off sin in my life? What else? Habits of grace express and enable enjoyment with God. That's where we started. That's the ground of the entire thing. Habits of grace cause diverse-looking growth. Growth looks very different from person to person. I taught a class called Spiritual Disciplines when I was teaching at Wheaton Grad School in, in Illinois. And I had this class, and there were 25 students, and the best exercise we did was I handed out overhead transparencies, remember those, to each student, and I told them to graph their spiritual growth. So if this is just like Jesus, and this is zero, what has your growth through your Christian life looked like? And it was amazing when everybody did them. And then I one at a time put the graphs up on the overhead and showed the class what the growth of others in the class had looked like. The number one thing we took away was how different everyone's graphs looked. Some were these plodding, just plodding toward Jesus, just steady growth since they were four. Other people plodding toward Jesus, and then bang! And then plodding again. Some people were bang, plodding, bang. That sort of, some were like EKGs, peaks and valleys, like crazy. And we all came away saying, oh, I guess God grows people differently. And I guess we need to be patient with that and not compare ourselves or be competitive with that. 
and let that go. And there was one couple in the class. They had the same graphs. They were a married couple, and they came to Christ at the same time, plodded along, and then took this giant spike at the same time in their graphs, and we all said, oh, what happened there? We must know. We want some of that. Until they said, oh, that's when our nine-year-old daughter died of leukemia. And we said, oh, I wonder if I do want that. And so, so we've got to allow for the difference in how these, the, we start with different soil, don't we? We've got all these different challenges and different blessings that come along, and we need to be so gracious and patient with how we grow. And finally, Jesus is our provision and our example in the enjoyment of grace. But number seven is the one I want us to leave with. Number seven, that this is all about enjoying God more. What this whole summer is is a massive invitation to a banquet, to a feast, because Peter tells us that those who are Christians are those who've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so this is all about tasting that more, that goodness more, feasting upon God himself. That's what the Lord's Supper is, this image of feasting on God himself. And that's, that's what this is, an invitational banquet. That's what's, where this is all heading, right? To a big wedding banquet where God is the one we're satisfied in more than anything else. Lord, help us to grow in our satisfaction of you. Help us to taste and see that you're good. I pray for each preacher in this series that you'd be blessing each one with greater integrity and spirit-enabled unction to preach your word clearly and powerfully in a way that brings us to the banqueting table of feasting upon you like never before. Help us in these things, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.